following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you, might be, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words might may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. As we've been singing about, as has been mentioned already a couple times this morning, we are in the season of Advent. Um, Today is the second week of Advent, and we've been talking about the theme of peace. Um, typically in Advent, there, there are these four big um, topics that typically, well, it, they'll be coming up throughout our liturgy, um, through the songs that we sing. The, these topics, these themes are love, joy, peace, um, and hope. And, and typically what happens is that there would be some sort of sermon that's in line uh, with one of those themes. But as we finish up the book of Ephesians, what I've already told you and keyed you into, we are on a, a different subject matter today. We are talking about warfare, right? Peace. Uh, no, warfare, spiritual warfare. Um, and at, at first glance, these things seem to be polar opposites, right? To, to say that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, that, that he's come to bring peace, yet here we are talking about warfare. But I, I want to show you this morning that in order to have real peace, there must be war. And, and spiritual warfare is a more fitting theme for Advent than you might think. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now that's one of those statements that leaves us scratching our head. Wait, what, the, the Prince of Peace? Jesus just says he didn't come to bring peace. What is he, what is he talking about here? And there's this qualifier here, this, this idea of cheap peace, of, of false peace, of, of a sort of a truce with the world. Jesus did not come to bring a truce with the world, to, to make a truce with the devil, with the evil one, with the powers of darkness that are pressing and, and taking territory here on earth. Jesus has come to wage war. In fact, we could argue 
that that is part of the purpose of the incarnation. When Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us, he came to wage war. Now this might seem paradoxical that the Prince of Peace comes to fight, right? The prophecy of Isaiah 9 really manifests itself in some kind of a warrior, but the only way to have peace here on earth is for us to wage war against evil, is to stand against Satan and his minions. Because Satan's purpose here with us in this domain which God temporarily grants him some kind of authority and power and influence, his entire intent is to undermine everything that God is for. He, he, he's out here to steal, kill, and destroy through his lies, through his deception. Now, throughout human history, Satan has been the chief antagonist. He makes his entry into the story of humanity all the way back in Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapters one and two is God creating this beautiful, magnificent world, and he places Adam and Eve, the apex of creation, man and woman made in the image of God in this beautiful garden which God has given them this mandate to fill the earth and subdue it, to see to its flourishing to make it beautiful, and in this garden, God has given them all kinds of things to enjoy, all kinds of fruits and veggies to eat, but there's one tree in the garden that God says, listen, this is a tree that I need you to stay away from. It's a tree of knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you can eat of anything else in the garden. You can have it all, but this one, stay away. Now, Satan slithers his way into the Garden of Eden, and right away starts deceiving Adam and Eve. He says, did God really say that you can eat of any tree? You couldn't even touch the tree? Right? He starts taking the, these commands that God has given and, and twisting them. He's twisting God's word in a way that's deceitful and eventually causes Adam and Eve to fall into sin. And, and in the midst of this, Adam and Eve, all kinds of just uh, turmoil plagues them where they start to feel shame and guilt. They, they're insecure about their bodies. They sense that they're naked, and so they run and hide away from God. The relationship that they have with God is broken. The relationship between one another is frayed and fractured, there's all kind. creation starts to unravel, roses grow thorns, all of this stuff starts to fall apart because Satan steps in and, and begins a rebellion among humanity. And as God comes and addresses the current situation, he, he pursues Adam and Eve in, in the garden and says, listen, what, what's happened, what's going on here? God goes on to pronounce a curse. He curses Satan that he'll, he'll be forever on his belly, slithering through. There, there's a curse upon humanity. Work will be hard. Childbirth will be hard. There'll be this temptation for the woman to rule over her husband. All kinds of, of things plague humanity now. And God says that from that point forward, there will be enmity between humanity and the serpent. There will be this conflict that is going on throughout the rest of human history, at least until the ultimate redemption that is to come, where Adam and Eve will be under attack of Satan. There's a spiritual warfare that is ensuing. 
And this is the, the theme that, that basically, it's, it's the lens that we look, look through when we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, and even today as we understand our current circumstances. Spiritual warfare, it shines a light exactly on what is happening now. Now, there might not be bombs dropping, right? We're not talking about a physical war, though it, it can manifest itself in a physical sense, but there's a spiritual war that is occurring throughout history and right now in real time and people are being oppressed by lies and held captive in darkness by the deceiver. Now even as God has pronounced enmity between the serpent and humanity, what's also accompanied this in Genesis chapter three is a promise. God promises his people that there one day will be a snake crusher. He says that, that the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but that seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. This is the first time that we're inclined to the reality that there is good news coming. It's the proto-evangelium. The serpent's head will be crushed. The destroyer would be destroyed himself. And it's from the seed of the woman there would be a deliverer this warrior, this Messiah who would come and stick it to the enemy once and for all. As you progress your way throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets testify as to what to expect when this destroyer is done away with for good. In Psalm 61, it talks about freedom for the captives, that, that the prisoners who are kept in darkness will be released Daniel 7 and 9 talk about this eternal kingdom of righteousness and glory. There will be an end to the curse that has been pronounced upon humanity. Sin will be done away with once and for all of the ramifications of sin will be undone. It will work itself backwards and become an even greater, more beautiful new heavens, new earth. Now this sounded great. This sounded great to the people who very much felt like they were either physical, because Israel at times was physical captors or captives, right? Captives to, to Egypt and Babylon. There were all kinds of different places where they, they felt physical oppression. And every time in the, in, the, in the Old Testament when you see physical oppression to the people of God, there's also this spiritual dynamic that is linked to it. Not only is there a physical oppression, there's this spiritual oppression that accompanies where they feel spiritually captive. And so the idea of this new kingdom that is coming sounded so good. It was enticing. And God sprinkled through the Old Testaments of, of who would bring about this new kingdom, this Messiah who would conquer and expel the forces of evil and darkness, bringing with him the light. Isaiah 59 says this Redeemer will come to Zion, the people of God, and he will be wearing righteousness as a breastplate. He'll be wearing the helmet of salvation, garments of vengeance. He'll be wearing zeal as a cloak. In Isaiah 11, he talks about the belt of truthfulness that he carries. Isaiah 49 talks about his mouth being a sharp sword. His primary weapon comes from his mouth. In Isaiah 52, his, his feet are swift, carrying this message of peace, announcing salvation. Now, of course, this, this Messiah that all the prophets speak to, all the prophets point forward to, that one day the one, the deliverer, the Messiah will come, the promised one, the anointed one. 
we can see on this side of eternity, on this side of, 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 of the cross, that they were all pointing to, to Jesus. And one of the things that we don't necessarily wrap our heads around, um, something that we don't necessarily see central to Jesus is the fact that he comes as a warrior. Now Jesus, don't get me twisted here, Jesus is in fact gentle and lowly. He, he loves, has a heart for sinners. But because he has a heart for sinners, he hates everything that undermines their flourishing, namely the enemy. And so he comes as a warrior to fight Satan and evil and to restore what has been lost. To, to, to bring back what has been fallen apart through the entry of sin into this world and the curse. This warrior Jesus delivers his people from the domain of darkness and the way that he sets us free is through his truth. It's not force. It's, it's, it's not even a literal sword. The way that he sets us free is the truth of his mouth. And Jesus comes and he triumphs over the powers and we're told in Ephesians that, that God has seated him high above every other ruler and power and authority in heaven and, and on earth and what is now and what is to come, that Jesus is above it all. And he's put these powers to shame by his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. Now what Paul tells us here, as we've been reading through the book of Ephesians, and what he says explicitly in the book of Romans is that in Christ, we too are conquerors with Christ. We benefit from Jesus coming as a mighty conquering king. And because of that, we are, we are the people who are no longer just oppressed people. There's a sense where sin still exists and we can feel the effects of sin, but in the most real sense, we are now the church triumphant. We have already been given victory in Christ. It's been sealed for us. In fact, in Ephesians chapter two, verse six, Paul says that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are the church triumphant. We are victors with Christ. Yet, yet, while we are earthbound, while we are living our lives here and now in this present age, we are part of the church militant. Now, military language is something that we tend to shy away from in, in the evangelical you know, circle here. Um, it sounds too brash, it sounds too forceful, it, it just it's kinda, can be off-putting. But this is terminology, this is language that is used throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And, and more than two places, Paul talks about putting on the armor of God. Right? This fact that, that as warriors we put on armor. He, he talks to Timothy, his protege, hey, be a faithful soldier to Christ to fight the fight of faith, to take up Jesus' cause of gospel advance while we are situated here in this present age. 
And so what that means for us is that if you are a Christian, following Jesus means following Jesus into battle, spiritual battle. If you are a Christian, your gospel identity is that of a warrior. Now, we talk about our identities and rhythms at Sacred City Church, um, and, and we typically say, hey, our identities are that of, of um, family, missionary, servants, learners, right, disciples of Jesus. And, and I think an outworking of being a disciple of Jesus is knowing that you are being thrust into the war. Right? To, to know your identity, to be a, an apprentice of Jesus means following him into battle, to owning this warrior identity. Which is why Paul charges all Christians here in Ephesians chapter six. He says, to be good, to be strong in the Lord, to be faithful warriors. He says, put on the armor of God that you would be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And he goes on, right, reminding us that we're not against flesh and blood here. It's against the powers of evil, of darkness. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand with, uh, withstand in, in the evil day, which is this moment, this age, and having done all to stand firm, to stand, 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 to fight, 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 right? This, the word stand isn't this defensive, passive thing. There is an offensive thing. In fact, the idea, the mentality that we should have that anytime that there's a defensive thing, it's, it's, it's in response to a counterattack, right? Christians are advancing the gospel message. Jesus calls us here, and Paul telling us, hey, put on the armor of God. He's calling us to fight. Now, to summarize Abraham Kuyper, he says this. He says, in the times which we live, being at peace is a sin. He's saying right now, in light of this cosmic reality, this cosmic war that's taking place, we cannot just stand on the sidelines. We cannot stand with our hands in the pocket. There are no spectators here. If you are a Christian, you are called to take action and to fight. And the only way that you can be successful in doing that is if you can put on the armor of God, which is what Paul calls us to, right? He calls us to fight. Here, now put on the armor of God, which he says is this here in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, withstand on the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now if you remember, if you can recall all of those prophecies about this Messiah who's coming, right? What, he's, what the warrior of the Messiah will be clothed in. All of that is reflected here in the book of Ephesians. See, Paul's not just referencing this military garb that the Roman soldiers would have in, in the first century. He's pointing all the way back to the promise of God that go back to the prophets, that the deliver, the warrior would come. And here we see that Jesus gives us the very same armor that he himself wears. 
See, we don't have a thrift store version. We don't have this flimsy plastic, you know, Halloween costume version of the armor of God. We get the very same armor that Jesus himself wears. What a gift. And what Jesus shows us through his life, through his ministry, is that this armor has been battle-tested It's been proven effective. And one of the places where Jesus shows this off to us and just proves it is in Matthew chapter four when he is tempted by Satan himself. Now it's unlikely for us, anyone in this room, I don't think any of us have the kind of clout that Jesus has where where Satan himself will manage. Satan is not omnipresent. He's finite, he's a created being. He does not have omni. It's very unlikely that we are going to create enough waves for Satan himself to show up in, the, in our face and oppose us. But he shows up and he opposes Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. L- let me read this to you because it's actually in this passage where we can see the armor of God at work. I think we've got it up on the screen here for you. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now that's fascinating. This is coming out of Jesus' baptism. He's been commissioned by God for the ministry that he's been set apart for. And the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's like he's saying, come at me, bro. You, you can't handle this. The Spirit brings it. Now, Jesus, we're told, he's fasting. He says, and after fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights. So Jesus was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and on on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against stone. And Jesus said to him, again, again, as it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I'll give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, Angels came and were ministering to him. Now here we see this armor of God, the same armor that the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter six, the same armor that the prophets testify to of the, of the Messiah and throughout the book of, of Isaiah. We see Jesus wear the belt of truth. It is the truth that upholds him in the face of adversity, especially when he's vulnerable especially when he's hungry and weak and weary. The truth sustains Jesus. He says, man doesn't live on bread alone, 
But every word, it's a truth that comes from the mouth of God. It upholds him. And, and what this does, it gives Jesus the ability to see reality, to see the world as God sees it, right? And in this, this ability, he can cut through the smoke of Satan. He's not given over to his feelings. He's not given over to subjectivity. The truth keeps Jesus. And we see this breastplate of righteousness that Jesus wears. And you know what? This, this breastplate of righteousness keeps Jesus from having to prove himself. The righteousness he wears, he knows, this is me. And you see this every time where Satan comes and says, hey, if you're the son of God, What's he doing there? He's provoking this question. Are you really, can you, can you really rely on that? Are, do you think the Father actually loves you? Would he really care for you? And Jesus stands and every, every assault that comes bounces off his chest. He's guarded from this. He knows his identity as the true son of God. He knows that he's righteous that God is well pleased with him, that he has the love and the affection of the Father. He doesn't have to prove it. You see Jesus' feet laced with the gospel of peace as he rejects tyranny. See, the whole thing, the, the, the enticement of saying, hey, I'll, I'll give you the whole kingdoms, all of the kingdoms I'll give to you if you, you bow down and worship me. That's an invitation to tyranny. And Jesus said, listen, I have not come to call a truce with tyranny. I have come to dismantle it. I have come to destroy it. So he rejects the tyranny of the devil. Then he's got the shield of faith. And this is what the shield of faith does. The shield of faith allows us to trust the promises of God. So when everything looks like it's chaotic, when everything looks like it's not working in our favor, faith says it keeps us rooted. It's an anchor that keeps us from being blown away. Real faith roots us in the promise of God. Real faith grounds us in the reality of God's love. This is one of the reasons why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter three, where he says, I pray that you would know the height, the breadth, the depth, the width of the vastness of the love of God. Real faith latches on to what God says. And when real faith is in action, it says here, it says that all of the flaming darts, all of the flaming arrows that come at us are quenched. All of the doubt, all of the fear, all of the, the skepticism. See, now, Satan, the, he, the, the reason why they're flaming darts is because flaming darts are more destructive than just shooting off a little arrow. The idea of a flaming dart is, hey, you send it back past, uh, past the front line and you hit their camp. You light their tents on fire. You destroy their home. You create chaos and pandemonium. That's what Satan wants to do. It may, he might not be wanting to attack you directly. In fact, he might be wanting to upheave your life in such a way where you feel frantic, where you feel scatterbrained, where you feel like discombobulated. And, and, and God says here, it's the shield of faith that quenches those, those flaming darts, those, those fiery arrows. Every flaming dart can be extinguished by 
the shield of faith. Satan's ability to wreak havoc can be totally frustrated. And that's what, that's what Jesus does. Satan walked away grumpy. He didn't get his way. Faith is what grounded Jesus, holding on to the promises, the love of the Father. And then we see the helmet of salvation. Now, a helmet protects the dome, all right? What goes on in the dome? It, it guards your mind. The helmet of salvation guards your mind, guards your thoughts. See, in this way, Jesus was, was prevented of settling for a false salvation. When Satan offered, hey, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down to me, what Satan was offering was a false salvation, a way of salvation without the cross, without the agony, without the fight. But the helmet of salvation protected Jesus' mind, so he said, nuh-uh, this is a fight that I must fight. I can't get around this, I have, and in fact, you even see it in the garden. The night before Jesus betrayed, he says, if there's any other way, would you take this cup from me? And, and again, the Lord tells him, this is the only way. There is no way without the cross. He set, his mind is guarded, that the way of salvation comes through the cross. And when Jesus keeps his mind, he keeps his mission. And his mission is to defeat Satan. Not to call a truce, not to settle for just a little bit, like, you know. When Jesus comes and says, Lord, he's saying that he's Lord of all. Lord of all. Not just the church. Not just these quaint little Sunday school programs and our little mission. Jesus is claiming that he is Lord of all, that he has purchased everything through the blood of the cross. It belongs to him. And his mission is to reclaim all of that, to bring it all back in relationship to him. And he cannot do that if Satan is off doing his little, little thing. He must be stopped. See, here in Matthew 4, we, say, we see that Jesus is wearing the armor of God. He's showing us an example of what it looks like. And it might seem kind of defensive. A lot of, a lot of this armor is defensive in a sense. A shield, or you've got a helmet. It's not like you're going to take your helmet off and like bash it, you know, maybe if you're desperate. But, but most of it's defensive. It's like when the blows come. But here, we see the one weapon that we actually need. See, if you're a Jesus follower, the one weapon that you need is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that's what we see happening in Matthew 4. Jesus is swinging that sword. He, he not only knows the Scriptures, He's not only been trained to understand and develop a worldview which makes sense of good and evil, of God and, and Satan, but he knows how to use it, how to proclaim. When it talks about the word of God, it's not just, there, there's many different ways that you can reference the word of God. There's the word of God in the sense of, of the Bible, um, there's the word of God um, in the sense of Jesus, the word become flesh. There's the word of God in the sense of proclamation. When the word, word of God is used here in, in this context of, of <clears throat> Ephesians 8, I'm getting out of control here. My throat's drying out. 
when it's used in this context, Paul is talking about the proclaimed word of God. Not just the word, word stored up in your heart. Not just the word that you meditate on, but the word that you wield like a sword. And Jesus proclaims the word of God in defiance. Now, what's interesting here, as Jesus is quoting the word of God, he's using it like a sword, what you see is is Satan tries it. Like, like we shouldn't be misinformed to think that, that the enemy doesn't know any of the word of God. In fact, we see Satan here handling the word of God, but he doesn't know how to use it. He doesn't know that the word of God exists to pierce him. And so one of the things that we must realize as Christians is how to use the word of God better than the enemy does. What does it actually mean? What is it saying? What truths can we hold on to? We have to see that the word of God, when used rightly, cuts and divides. Hebrews 4, 12 says that the word of God is living and active, it's quick, it's powerful, it's sharp. And when it's used against Satan, he has no choice but to retreat and flee while he still can. When you fight the enemy, when you use the word of God, Satan has no choice but to flee. Now Jesus shows us here in Matthew chapter four what it looks like to wear the armor of God when he's in in the midst of battle, but also you survey through the gospels, throughout his whole ministry, he's wearing the armor of God. There's never a moment when he does not have it on. He's all, it's it's exactly what Paul talks about. He said, praying at all times um, with the spirit, with all prayer, with all supplication, to keep alert, with all perseverance. Jesus was always on guard. As Jesus shows us what wearing the armor of God looks like through his life and his ministry, what he's doing, he's showing us how to fight. He's showing us how we too, in lockstep with him, can resist the schemes of the devil, to stay true to the calling that we have on our life. And Jesus graciously makes the very same armor available to us that we could wear for our whole lives as we make our way through this world, as we live as the church militant. Now God gives us this armor. I mean, this would be under the category of of every spiritual blessing that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter one, right? This armor of God that's given to us. But Paul makes it clear that, that that we have to put it on, that we have to suit up right? Just, just in the way that you put on clothes to get here this morning, every day putting on the armor of God. He tells us twice in this passage, he says, to put on the armor of God, to take up the armor of God. It is something that we must take action. Now, granted, he says that in the strength of, of Christ, right? That, that's how he begins. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might, which then leads into put on the armor of God. But it's something that we must put on daily. And unfortunately, too many Christians do not 
put it on. Too many Christians go about their day without putting on the armor of God. And what happens is we get bombarded by the enemy. See, when we treat the armor of God like a collector's novelty piece that we keep kind of framed up in a glass enclosure, oh wow, that's so nice, that's great. Instead of putting it on, we become susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. The faith that God gives us and and the faith that holds on to us then now is disrupted. We start feeling the attacks of the enemy and we, we start doubting, am I good enough? Have I lived a good enough life that God would accept me, right? And what are you doing? You're forgetting that the breastplate of righteousness is not your works-based righteousness. It's a righteousness of Christ that's been accredited to you. In the midst of every failure and every flaw, those do not define you. And the accuser wants to do, he wants to take all of your flaws, all your faults, all your failures before God and say, come on, you can't let this guy in, right? This guy's a joke. You're gonna let him into your kingdom? And if we start listening to the accuser, we're, we're gonna hang our head and say, you know, he's right. He's right, I'm a, I'm a fraud, I'm a fake. But when the righteousness of Christ guards us, when it protects, see, what we get to do from that spot is, is, is say, yeah, Satan, you know what, you're right. Every single thing that you just said about me is true. Yet, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. While I was still ungodly in rebellion against God, fighting on the wrong team, Jesus died for me. And you know what? I am forever in the love of God. My name is graven in his hands. I'm his. See, the righteousness of God guards us. When we forget to put on the armor of God, we cannot fight. In fact, here's, here's one of the things that I'm, I'm pretty sure is happening, um, I had to take a picture of this. I was thinking about this this week, because there's such a, a contrast between the armor of God and the armor of self. It, it's so easy to, you know, you just wake up and you're wearing the armor of self to put on the armor of God. And so I think that there's, there's many people, many Christians that are wearing the wrong suit of armor. See, instead of the belt of truth, it's the belt of subjectivity. What works for you doesn't work for me kind of get in your emotions, get in your feelings. You let, you let those things determine reality instead of seeing things as God sees them. Right? And when everything's subjective, when everything's sort of nebulous and floating through, there is no anchor. Instead of the belt of, or the breastplate of righteousness, we put on, on the breastplate of, of sensuality. Right, right those desires that are twisted and warped and perverted that lead us into sin and rebellion against God instead of of the shoes of peace that are eager and ready to go carrying the good news, we we instead go in with the shoes of truth. I don't wanna have that hard conversation. That speaking the truth is gonna be too uncomfortable for me so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put my head down, I'm gonna keep my head low, right, try not to cause any waves. And so you settle for a false peace, a truce, not real peace. Instead of a shield of faith, it's a shield of skepticism and cynicism. It's just perpetual doubt. Now, it's not that, see, the shield of faith actually allows for doubt. 
for questions, for, for asking and wondering. But the spirit of cynicism, the spirit of skepticism will forever keep us in a stunted place. Instead of the helmet of salvation, it's the helmet of indifference. Good enough is good enough. Can't envision anything better. I can't, I can't envision um, a life where God actually restores all things to himself. The sword uh, of self-help, right? I can do things in my own strength. I can pull myself up by the, it's, it's not the sword of the word. It's not the sword of the spirit. So many of us are waking up and we're wearing the wrong suit. And when that happens, the church will inevitably lose ground. And you see that happening in our culture now. And it's not a new thing. It's not like it just happened overnight. This has been the progression of our culture that is less and less of, of an allowance for the reality of spiritual warfare, less and less uh, openness to understanding and hearing about the gospel and who Jesus is and God actually being a part of this world. The church loses ground. We lose our kids because we don't know how, how to fight. And, and when we don't know how to fight, it seems like Satan is winning, like reality is being distorted. Now, thankfully, God doesn't just like leave it to us to figure out how the armor of God works, right? The word of God opens up to us how the armor of God works. It opens up to us what's going on when we put on the shield of faith and put on the helmet of salvation and the belt of truth. The word of God equips us to step onto the battlefield of life. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 4 that you can't live on bread alone, but every word that comes from God, you cannot fight without the word of God. It's like an instruction manual for our armor. It teaches us, uh, it trains us, it, it tells us how the armor of God, how we can deploy that here in our real life. The word of God leads us into truth. To see reality as God sees it. To, to see salvation. Not just this, this narrow sort of Jesus died so I can punch my ticket to heaven kind of salvation. But salvation of the whole cosmos. That everything would be redeemed. That that would guard our mind. That we're not losing. It's impossible to lose because Christ has already conquered. It defends us in righteousness. And with faith. So the word of God equips us to actually wear and use this armor of God. And the, the word of God also shows us, not, not just that we need to take it into our hearts, but we need to wield it like a sword. That we need to proclaim the excellencies of the Most High. We proclaim the gospel message. We're heralds. That's, that's a whole concept here about the shoe analogy or the imagery that, that Paul uses. That we're heralds. We're running with the good news to proclaim. And Jesus shows us in the wilderness what it looks like to declare. In the face of accusation. In the face of lies. To speak, speak the truth. To trust the truth. See, this means the whole thing of spiritual warfare, it tells us and just reaffirms once again what Paul says, it's not against flesh and blood. Your enemy is not your neighbor. Your enemy is not your political adversary. Your enemy is not a, somebody who comes from a different culture or ethnicity or background. 
from a different social class. They are not your enemy. The enemy is a spiritual power of darkness, and the only way to fight a spiritual power of darkness is to wage a war of words through the word of God. Now, God not only gives us the book to say, hey, here's how you use this. Here's how you wield the sword. Here's how you use the, the, the shield of faith. God places his people in a context where we can learn to fight this fight together. No army is a one-man army. The church is made up of the saints, a collection of people that Jesus has paid for and redeemed by his own blood and brought them together as a, a family. And one of the ways that we fight, one of the ways is being here on Sunday mornings to be under the preaching of the word, to be empowered by the sacrament. Every time we open our voices to sing and declare what God has done, we are protesting against the enemy. And that's how we fight. And that's how we show our kids how to fight. As we're side by side, in fact, uh, one commentator said, listen, the shield thing, the, the, the shields that the Romans had at that time were short shields. They weren't big, massive shields that you could literally hide your hide, whole body behind. The shields that were being used were these, these partial shields that it required you to be in line with other soldiers with you. Show this, inter, this interconnected community that we must rely on, that your brother, your sister fights with you. They have your back, you have theirs. If we're gonna make it through this world, if we're gonna be the, the people that God preserves from this age into the next age of the new heavens and new earth, what the heck was that? <laughs> we have to fight together. We have to fight together. We learn from one another. We disciple each other. We encourage one another through the power and inclination of the Spirit. Listen, one of the things that, that church is for is to encourage. The, I, I have not yet met a person who has been too encouraged, a person who is too confident or too, too eager to fight the fight of faith. So when, when we're dragging our feet, when we're feeling down, we have to pick up our brothers and sisters and encourage them and fight together to link our shields. And one of the ways that we do that, it's not just that the, the enemy is out there trying to infiltrate. It's that there are ways where the enemy is already attacking us. That we're already duped into believing lies. That our minds have been, you know, veiled over. And what we have to do to fight for one another is what Paul says to do in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 speaking the truth in love to one another, to build up the body of Christ, to build up the army of God. When a brother and sister, you can sense that they're under attack. When the accuser is coming, when the tempter is coming, when the liar is lying, that we lift up our brothers and sisters in prayer, like Paul says, praying at all times with the Spirit, with all prayer, with all supplication. And he says, pray for me too, by the way, while you're at it. So we speak 
We pray and we speak the word of God over them. We reground them in the truth of reality. There's a sense where we fight. We fight together, not against one another. Oh, there it is again. But we fight so that we can go together. Right? To, to cut down the enemy when he's got my, my ankle, when, when I've been in a foothold. Somebody comes along and brings that sword and chops it down. Sacred City Church needs men and women who are committed to the fight. Sacred City Church needs men and women who will stand up and fight for what is good. Listen, we can't afford to play it safe. We can't afford, we can't afford to take a, a conservative approach. Can't, we can't afford to fly under the radar. We need to stand into this call that God puts on us to fight, not against flesh and blood, but against the lies, to fight against the enemy, to push back darkness and to walk in the light of Jesus Christ. Now this all starts, I mean we would do this as a community, but really what we have to do, this all starts at home. This starts first with yourself, taking personal responsibility. Every day that I wake up, I am committed to putting on the armor of God. It's not only your flourishing that depends on it, it's the flourishing of other, other people that depends on it. I'm going to put on the armor of God. I'm going to saturate my mind in the word of God. I'm going to prepare my lips to speak the word of God. I've got ammunition stored up in my heart. So when the enemy shows his face, whew, there goes a sword. We have to be people of the book. And the other part of that is then saturating your family in the word. Making sure your spouse is putting on the armor as well. See, a house divided, if one of you has armor on and the other doesn't, you're still susceptible. You gotta fight together. Parents, we need to train our kids to be little dragon slayers. We do, listen, I, I, there's a sense where like, when I say this, you're going, oh my gosh, come on. Not for, the, Satan wants your children. He wants to stop the generational vision that God has for the church right here with us. And so we have to fight tooth and nail to, to, oh my goodness, I'm gonna get worked up here, but to fight so hard to put our kids before Jesus, to teach them the way of righteousness, to teach them the goodness and the sweetness and the power of Jesus. 15 minute family devotionals is not gonna do it. It's not gonna do it. We have to be committed to a lifestyle of training our kids in the way of the Lord. It's a big fight, we have a big enemy, but we, can afford, we cannot afford to be afraid of the fight. We cannot afford to cower, which is why Paul again reminds us in verse 10 to be strong in the Lord. See, it's in the strength of the Lord that we ought to take risks, 
that we ought to open our mouth up and speak truth, even when it's not the popular opinion. It's in the strength of the Lord that we ought to put it all on the line and fight relentlessly. Now, if there's one thing about church history that it tells us is that there will be casualties. Because at some point, when Christians become so potent, so powerful for the advance of the kingdom of God, he runs out of options. And he's gotta, he's gotta cut them out. Right, we have a heritage of martyrs. Now in our culture right now, the idea of martyrdom maybe is, is kind of far away. But we've got brothers and sisters overseas that are fighting like that. That they have the spirit of the martyr. We have to have the spirit of the martyrs. Because the martyrs are the seeds of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the church that keeps growing. In fact, in Revelation 12, there's this testimony here that says, and they have conquered him, the saints, the martyrs, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, conquered the enemy by the blood of the lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Church, we have to follow in their footsteps. We have to embody the spirit of the martyrs, this radical commitment that we will not relent, we will not back down. And there's three reasons why. Number one, we are promised persecution. There will be conflict in your life when you follow Jesus. You can expect it. In fact, in the Beatitudes, Jesus talks, well, right after he says the peacemakers, he says, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, and by the way, blessed are you when you're persecuted on my namesake. You can expect it. So let's expect it and not back down. Number two, in Matthew chapter, let's see, where was it? Matthew chapter 10, that, that part where Jesus talks about, hey, I didn't, I didn't come to make peace with the earth, I came to bring a sword, one of the things that he says is, do not fear the one who can destroy your body. Fear the one who can destroy your soul. What he's doing is, put this in perspective. The worst that Satan can do to you is kill you. Which, by the way, is also the best thing for you because to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord. Christians, we believe in the resurrection. That when our body perishes, when it goes away, we are with the Lord and there will be the day of the resurrection where all things will be restored and in that moment, it'll prove that it was totally worth it. Oh boy. We believe in the resurrection and so it's in the spirit of the resurrection we're called to put, up, put on the armor of God, to stand up, to fight our way through life but we have to remember that success Victory does not ultimately ride on our shoulders. We're not crossing our fingers and hoping we make it through. We fight from a place of victory. Jesus has already conquered. He is the word that became flesh. See, as we study the word, what are we doing? We're, we're, we're connecting with Jesus. We're drawing from Jesus, the spirit of Christ pouring out into us, knowing him. He's empowering us to fight. Therefore, we stand strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Jesus lived like a warrior. He died the, a warrior's noble death. It looked like weakness, but the power of the res resurrection showed that it was the power of God. He was ascended into the right hand of the Father, 
and he will come again and he will bring with them this kingdom of heaven. All of the cosmos will be renewed. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Everything that has been affected by the curse of sin will be restored. This is the only way. This is the only way that true peace is possible. See, Jesus, when he died, he reconciles us to God. He reconciles us to each other. He's reconciling the whole world. And one day, the shalom, the peace that we long for, will be here. But until then, we fight because Christ is our peace. This morning, as we come to Lord's Supper, we remember the power of Jesus in his weakness. Remember the strength of Jesus demonstrated that as, as he went to the cross, his body was broken, his blood was shed, and what looked like defeat ended up being victory in God's hands. This is, this is a foretaste of the meal to come in the new heavens, new earth, the, the banquet of the Lamb. This is the meal that strengthens us for the fight. There's a supernatural strength that comes to us as we participate. I can't explain it. I don't know. There's mystery here. But the sacrament strengthens us to live into the calling that God has for our sacred city church. Let us come and feast. Let us find our strength and our peace in Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who wages war against darkness and evil and wins. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your power and your might. No words, no words that I have can adequately describe your power, your love for us, yet here we come and you give us this really tangible thing here, the, 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 the juice, the wine, the little wafer that reminds us that you are for us. You have already fought for us. You have already broken the chains. You've already brought us into the kingdom of your beloved son, delivering us from the domain of darkness. Help us to live into this identity as yours, as your people, as warriors that are, are fighting for gospel advance so that all people would know of your grace and your glory through Christ Jesus. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.